You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Doug Bowles, President, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, public relations guru, and a man who I think has as much energy as anyone I've ever met. Doug, thank you for coming on the podcast during the month of May. Well, thanks for having me on. That's a nice introduction. Um, You and I have similar backgrounds, I think, in terms of our passion and our our service in, uh, in, in politics and on the 25th floor of the city county building and some of the other places. Uh, certainly love this city and love this place. So it's easy to have a lot of energy when you're passionate about what you and the place you do it. Well, you're very kind to give us an hour of your time uh, here during the, the most iconic month on the Indianapolis calendar. Just, uh, but don't, I would... just, tell my, just don't tell my wife because you're getting more, t- more time than my family gets in May. And, and it's too early in May to start arguing over why I did, didn't give her this hour. But no, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Uh, and honestly, I'd rather I'd rather be in a world where I was busy all the time than looking for something to do. I, that way I stay out of trouble. We are happy to even up the odds by having her on the podcast. <laughs> Anytime. Uh, you know, the, one of the things that's, that I wanted to, to talk about your career and everything else, and again, to be grateful for your time, but uh, we were recording this uh, the first week of May, and we had an icon pass away mm-hmm. just a few days ago, and that is Bobby Unzer. You, you had a terrific statement that was released to the press, but let me ask you in your own words here on the podcast about Bobby Unzer and his legacy at the motor speedway and beyond yeah certainly it was uh news that we knew was likely coming sooner rather than later he's been failing early over the last uh year and a half or so um and growing up in indianapolis and growing up a race fan i was a foyt fan so if you're a foyt fan you didn't like mario andretti and you didn't like bobby unser you might like al unser but you certainly didn't like bobby so it's funny for me to I think about growing up and just being such an AJ fan and Bobby being as good as he was. You just AJ, if AJ was going to win, he had to be Bobby and Mario. So, so um, but for me, I, I really gained an appreciation for Bobby over the last 10 years I've been here at the Speedway and in particular the last eight that I've been president because of his passion for our sport. You know, he, his on-track piece speaks for itself. The guy could drive anything and win in anything. That was that was undisputed and I might have argued that AJ was better but Bobby would argue that he was better and and that was what I loved about Bobby he was able to you know he had this just bigger than life personality outside the car he believed in himself like nobody you 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 would know I mean to be a great politician right because he just truly believed in himself but what but what he loved more than that is he loved our fans he loved the Indy 500 he loved what it meant to this state and to this city and he would call every year early in the year and say, hey, Doug, I'm going to come back. What can I do? You know, I'm there. I'll stay the whole month. We get him a motorhome spot. He'd, he'd stay with the driver in the driver owner lot where most of the current drivers would stay. And he literally every day would call and say, what can I do for you today? I just want to. And even if it was just, hey, can you go talk to this group of fans or whatever? Or you'd find him out on his own just interacting with fans. And that, to me, uh, really says everything you need to know about Bobby Unser. He understood that what he got to do, he got to do because of the fans. 
and what he got to do when he was a race car driver was because of how successful he was and winning three times at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway um, is pretty is pretty special if you look back at our 110 years since the track was first built and Bobby was a three-time winner not a four-time winner but he didn't care in his mind he he was the best winner ever in Indy 500 history and it and he never wavered and it was it was awesome there's so many great stories about him um, you know, and then towards the end, we, we would give him a rental car when he came in for he and Lisa and he would drive around and I get a call every, every once in a while. He said, Hey, Doug, uh, there was one of those temporary stop signs. I didn't see it. It was at blank and blank inside the racetrack. It's, <laughs> it's on its side and there's a little dent in the rental car. You know, I mean, he was just a piece of work and there was always some story uh, that you got with Bobby, but he would do anything you asked. Even the last year he was here in 2019 and just, uh, a lot of lower back pain he had a lot it was really difficult for him to walk around you talked to him in the motor home and you could tell he was in pain and as soon as he walked out the door and saw the first fan it was as if uh, there was no pain at all he was just a, a beautiful beautiful person who loved this place and uh, you know it was outside the car piece that I really fell in love with and it uh, it erased all the bad the bad thoughts I had of Bobby Unser beating H.A. Foyt to the finish line at several races. I've mentioned this on uh, several podcasts we've done with 500 related guests, whether that's Donald Davidson or we were fortunate enough to interview Johnny Rutherford last year, who was an absolute prince. He, he was so incredibly kind, speaking mm -hmm. of three-time winners. Yep. Uh, but my uncle, Bob Dorn, so Uncle Bob, if you're listening, my uncle was a pit crewman for A.J. Foyt in 1961 when Foyt won the first time. And if you look at the film of the race after after Foyt crosses the, the finish line to win, my uncle, I think, is last as they're all running down the uh, uh, to pit row or to victory lane. And I joke because he was in the Marine Corps, he should have been first, and I was in the Army, and I would have been first. But in, in the fake races we had as kids, my brother was always Foyt, and I was always Bobby Unzer yeah. because the whole family were Foyt fans, and I got I was like, well, wait a second, I want to be Foyt. But when you look back at Unzer's career, he doesn't take a backseat to anyone. I mean, he won everywhere and won the respect of everyone everywhere and turned out to be one hell of a TV commentator too. He, he, and, and part of that was just that colorful personality he has, right? And he was never afraid to share an opinion, even if it wasn't going to be a popular one. He was never politically correct. I mean, he just spoke from the heart and what he believed and he drove that way too. You know, I was thinking about it yesterday when we were trying to I figure out how to honor him as I was driving in yesterday morning. And the thing that's really cool about his wins is he, he won over three decades, only two Indy 500 drivers have done that. The other being Rick Mears, but he did it in three vastly different race cars. And it really speaks a lot to the talent that he had. And frankly, the talent that race car drivers in the sixties and seventies had to just go from one vehicle to the next, and especially to go from one vehicle to the next that was different and be competitive and win in all of them. His 68 car is one of the most iconic uh, race car winning cars here at the Speedway it was you know featured in this in Paul Newman's uh, film winning, uh, and then to come here with uh, Dan Gurney for so long and win in that Gurney Angle in 1975 that's a completely different vehicle than 68, and then in 81 in a car that was basically sucked to the ground through crazy uh, ground effects that they had in those days, all take different driving techniques, and for somebody in his career to be able to adapt that quickly and be so successful on, in all three of them, I think speaks an awful lot about Bobby, but certainly about people uh, in that era that were successful. And then, you know, growing up, winning at Pikes Peak and winning Pikes Peak more than anybody in the history of the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. For those folks that have been to Colorado Springs and had an opportunity to drive up Pikes Peak, it's now paved all the way to the top. In the days when Bobby started running, it, was not, it wasn't paved at all. And then it was only paved part of the way up. And you're 14,000 feet uh, sideways with half a tire hanging off the edge of the mountain trying to get to the top. It takes a special person to do that, let alone a special person to do it quick enough to win it. I'm not going to ask how old you are because that would be Trey Gosh. Yeah, I'm, but I'm, I, 50, I'm 54. It's all good. All right. So I'm 53. I am not the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So I, I'll, I'll defer to your vast, vast knowledge of the sport. But how lucky were we to have grown up in that era of the 70s, late 60s, 70s, 80s of IndyCar racing and all these icons, some of whose names you just mentioned. Is it hard to compete with that era because of people like us and older who just remember when the Indianapolis 500 
was replete with all time legends. And that's no slam on the drivers now, of course, but Foyt, John Cock, Unzer, Unzer, Sneva, Ray Hall, the list goes on and on. Andretti, of course. Well, at the risk of not sounding like our, or of sounding like our parents, um, you know, that I don't know that there was a better era for the Indy 500 and IndyCar racing. Now, my dad and Donald Davidson would argue that the best era was the 50s and 60s when the roadsters were really there. And these men that drove those cars, uh, the risk that they took to drive those cars as fast as they did around the speedway um, and, the, and the engineering that went into, you know, building some of those cars in garages. But you and I got to see and people our age got to see this transformation of the sport that really went from those cars that were that were built in people's garages. Um, they were towed in, in open air trailers to what today is this unbelievably corporate sport. Uh, but we got to see it where the cars were different every year. You couldn't wait till the next year to see who had a bigger wing, uh, what the nose of the cars looked. They just changed so much. And you had these superstars, as you just mentioned, that didn't just run. They didn't get focused. Like race car drivers today are so focused on their discipline. You're a NASCAR driver. You're an IndyCar driver. You're a, exactly. you know, a sprint car driver. There's very few people that did everything. And back in, or that, do, that does everything. Back in the day, they did everything. So we had this opportunity to see a guy that was really successful at the local dirt track winning at Indianapolis or in the IndyCar circuit in these cars that were uh, spectacular and, and changed every year. The technology was changing so fast. Um, it, was, it was just a great time to watch IndyCar racing. And for me, that is, is still the romantic era. Now, I could ask my youngest son, who's a senior in high school, and he's going to tell you that he's seeing the most incredible time in racing over the last 10 years as he's gotten to see Dario Franchitti and Dan Weldon and, and all these great race car drivers, uh, Juan Pablo Montoya. So I think it's really a matter of where you grow up. But I think if you stepped away from it and really looked at the history of the Speedway from the first 500 in 1911 to this year's 500 in, in 2021, it's, it'd be pretty hard to find 10 or 15 years as special as those 10 or 15 years when we were teenagers and, and you know, middle schoolers through high school. Um, it, it was a, a special time in IndyCar racing, and that's why still to this day, when you say Bobby Unz or Alan or Mario Andretti, AJ Foyt, Rick Mears, you can go on, the list goes on and on, and they're the greatest of all time. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking to Doug Bowles, president of Indianapolis Motor Speedway, grew up in Danville, went to Butler University. Uh, we just had Barry Collier on the podcast about a month ago, uh, talking a little bit about uh, not a little bit, but quite a bit about the Butler run to two consecutive final games in the NCAA tournament. A, what were your thoughts during those two runs? And B, I know how much of a homer you are for Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you think of Indianapolis's performance and the Hoosiers, generally speaking, performance as we hosted the entire NCAA tournament? Well, I'll start there. I mean, you couldn't be prouder than you couldn't be prouder of a city, of a community uh, than Indianapolis to take on the challenge that they did. I'm sure when the idea was floated around, I don't know if it started at Sports Corp or where the idea came to, hey, let's just let's host the entire tournament at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It was probably one of those things where ah, there's no way this could happen. And then just like the spirit that Indianapolis has really always had since it decided to bring the Baltimore Colts to Indianapolis and have a Pan Am games and build these stadiums and say, Hey, we are the amateur sports capital of the world. Come to this city in the middle of the country that has no ocean, no mountains, no real uh, reason to come to speak of other than the hospitalities here. And we can do mighty things. Uh, I'm sure then that's when it became a challenge for our team. And we knew that we could, we could take a crazy idea and turn it into reality and, and make the world pay attention and do it in a way that I don't think any other community could. So I'm really, really proud of the effort um, of the Sports Corp, uh, of the city of Indianapolis, all of our hotels, the restauranteurs, everybody that's here that has to make that happen and make that Hoosier hospitality really a real thing. It was fun to watch. And as a promoter of an event, uh, a little bit later in the spring, we certainly were hoping it would be as successful as it was because that was a catalyst, I think, to beginning to get our life back to a more normal state. As it relates to Barry Collier and the, and the, and the craziness of Butler going to the final game two years in a row, um, I was in, I was actually on a cruise uh, the first year and watching, uh, watching both games on a cruise and watching on the upper deck out under the stars, watching Butler almost, almost beat Duke, which was a 
was which was a crazy thing. And then I don't know how to tell this next story. The next story, I actually had started working at the Speedway, so it's 2011, and and we uh, asked Donald Trump to be our pace car driver for the 100th anniversary of the Indianapolis 500. And I was actually in New York um, for the when that game took place because we were making the uh, the announcement official with the pace car in Trump Tower the next day. And uh, I kind of gone through all the walkthroughs. I'd gone back to my hotel and watched the first half of the game, decided I was hungry because I hadn't eaten all day. There was a little subway across the street and, and I walked in and I knew something was wrong with the subway. I couldn't find anybody. It just was small, it didn't feel like your normal subway and grabbed a sandwich finally when somebody came in from outside to serve me, watched the game, ate my sandwich, disappointed obviously that Butler just couldn't pull it off. and. Woke up a few hours later, sicker than I've ever been in my life, which I attribute to food poisoning from this from the subway. Well, I don't know if it's actually true or not, but that's certainly how I felt. And the next morning, I was still sick, and I had to go to Trump Tower and, and work through. So I went over about two hours early to scout out where the restrooms were because I knew I was going to need them uh, to quickly uh, get there if I was feeling ill. So I kind of scouted those out and was struggling to get through. And Jeff Belskis was the president of the Speedway at the time, and um, he showed up. I'm struggling. Mm -hmm. And at one point, um, Mr. Trump at the time said, Hey, uh, Mr. Bowles, could you come upstairs? I'd like to go through the run of show with you. Cause we'd done a little walkthrough and I didn't, last thing I wanted to do was get on an elevator um, because I did not feel good. And he had the, he had the golf channel following him around. So we had a film crew with us and we're on an elevator. And uh, as soon as we got off the elevator, I asked where the restroom was. So do that, go back. It was just a really challenging moment for me. <laughs> I don't know if that was a foreshadowing of things to come or what, or what that was, but, uh, um, or maybe it was just severe disappointment because Butler for two years in a row uh, doesn't win a national championship. But stepping away from that, looking back, for Butler University to be in the national championship game one time, let alone two times in a row, says an awful lot about Barry Collier, says that the Butler way is a real thing. They're a blast to cheer for. Um, I love that team because the kids just want to play basketball and they want to do it the right way. And and Barry's been really committed to the, the right coaching hires, the right philosophy, the right culture. Um, and at this, I'm just proud to be a Bulldog. There's, you mentioned the Sports Corp earlier when talking about hosting the NCAA tournament and the the greatest honor I've ever had professionally was working for Greg Ballard and the head of the president of the sports corp is Ryan Vaughn, probably the premier leader of his generation in this city, a phenomenal leader in all ways. He was chief of staff to mayor Greg Ballard. Uh, the list goes on and on of people who have worked on the 25th floor and have gone on to do amazing things. Paul Okeson, Michael Huber, David Johnson, uh, Susan Brooks, uh, we can't name them all. It'd be the whole podcast, but you had the experience of working in the Indianapolis mayor's office for Stephen Goldsmith. What was that like? And how did that time in the mayor's office change your life and make you a better executive? Well, you know, first of all, um, Greg Ballard was an amazing mayor um, and he hired great people. And I think that that's one of the things that all of our mayors have done, regardless of your party, um, dating all the way back to uh, certainly Mayor Luger, um, Mayor Hudnut. I mean, just giving passionate people an opportunity to make a difference and putting them in roles where they could succeed. And it just continued through, you know, through Steve, through Mayor Peterson, through Mayor Ballard. Um, it, it's, it's one of the things that set Indianapolis apart and, and really uh, made us so special. My work with Steve, I, Steve is the smartest person I've ever been around. He had this amazing ability to not sleep. The guy didn't sleep. He worked 24 hours a day and take the most complex problems, even in a space that he didn't know anything about and, and just understand them almost instantaneously and then help solve them. He was a, a, an amazing person. He loved policy. He loved to make a difference. He probably liked less than most elected officials, the handshaking and the, and, and the interaction with people because he just wanted to get stuff done. He really didn't want to politic. Um, but Steve was the first person for me, I started out, I was at the state house and I actually worked for Steve in the prosecutor's office and then went to his campaign and then ultimately the 25th floor um, that realized I was really passionate about motorsport and said, let's figure out a way to 
use your passion uh, to make a difference for this community. He didn't like it that I left on weekends and went to a racetrack. He, <laughs> he figured if I was going to go to a racetrack, it had to somehow benefit his administration and benefit the city of Indianapolis. So we started the mayor's uh, task force to attract businesses to Indianapolis that were motorsport related. And we, our first team to come here was Walker Racing back in the day and Simpson Safety Products and several others followed followed suit. So it allowed me to spend 5% of my time in the mayor's office thinking about uh, what I loved the most, which was motorsport. And that really probably was the first point at which I really started building a network and an opportunity to find a way to work in motorsport in motorsport full time. I left the mayor's office after helping get the budget passed in 1997, the city budget, and went to uh, start Panther Racing alongside of you know Terry Langner and Gary Pedigo and Jim Harbaugh and a handful of other a local businessman um, who just wanted a chance to compete in the Indy 500. And we started a race team and, and I haven't looked back really since uh, October of 1997. I grew up. And, really, and, I, and I say that to say that Steve is, Steve is the, well, my, my, my dad is the foundation for that, but Steve is the professional foundation that has allowed me to do this. I grew up about a mile from the speed room. So you could have just gone over there on Kitley and handed out some Goldsmith swag on, on Friday or Saturday night. Yeah, I could have, I could have done that. <laughs> Does it, does, does the mayor's office as a training ground for people who want to make a difference? I think it's unparalleled. I mean, when you, when you figure that Mayor Luger's two chiefs of staff were Jim Morris and Mitch Daniels, you know, when you go up there or whether it's a David Frick or a Joe Slash, but is it fun being a part of that? alumni for lack of a better term and when you see whether it's a susan brooks or any other names that we can come up with and you have that shared experience is that a fun thing to reminisce about because you can really get stuff done up on 25 well you know i would tell young people right now that as they're looking for experience the greatest place to get experience is in a job like that doesn't pay a lot uh, the hours can be terrible, but the opportunity and the experience you get and the network you build, it, it, to your point, is unparalleled. It is just an amazing way to learn, and it's an amazing way to make a difference, especially uh, when you have a leader that wants to make a difference. It just really gives you an opportunity to get out there. You know, I'm still, and I, I don't know if you feel this way too, but I'm, I'm still, you know, Mark Miles is my boss. He's the president and CEO of Penske Entertainment that owns the Speedway and owns the IndyCar Series and our production company, and he also, really, his roots are in are in those uh, in those 70s uh, and 80s era uh, politics in Indianapolis. When I'm around the the names you mentioned, you know Jim Morris for sure, and even Susan Brooks and and even Mark, I still feel like a staffer, right? I I don't I'm not worthy of those folks, and it's probably like a young race car driver right now feels when they're around um, Scott Dixon, right? I mean you're just still a fan, and you still have so much more to learn. So for me, it's um, I've never thought about it as being being in their club as much as I still feel like um, there's so much to learn from them and, and the, the passion that all of those folks have had for our city and the way and, the, and as much energy and effort as they've given to make our city and in a lot of ways our country depending on you know what avenue they took uh, better is is also is a great definition of what the Hoosier spirit's all about I mean we just we just tend to find a way to give back I never worked for or with Mayor Goldsmith uh, but I did work with one of his uh, protégés, Michael Huber, who mm -hmm. I know you know very well. Yep. And I always thought that Huber was, uh, he's now president of the Greater Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce. I always thought Huber was a bit of a mad scientist, which I assume that he got from Goldsmith. Is that something that you've brought to the Speedway? In other words, okay, we've never done these things, but we're going to do these things. And 2015 and 2020 are different than 1950 and 1990. Specifically, an example would be bringing the Rolling Stones mm -hmm. to the IMS for a concert. Are you a bit of an experimenter and a tinkerer? And does that come from your uh, background working with Goldsmith, who's certainly known as an innovator? And Mark so Myers, too. One of the things that really stuck with me about Steve was the fact that he followed one of our most successful, maybe the most successful and popular, popular mayor in the history of Indianapolis and Bill Hudnut. Uh, and immediately 
Steve started talking about change. Steve wanted to make changes in government. Steve wanted to make changes in the way that uh, we looked at public-private partnerships, the things that he was really passionate about. And people looked at him like he was crazy and said, well, why, why do this? Everything is, is good right now. And Steve's philosophy all along was, it's good right now, but it doesn't mean it always will be. And the best time to, to get yourself better, especially make a change for better, is when everything's good. It's really hard to change your direction when it's bad. So now is the right time to invest in change that allows us to continue this growth and not let it flatten out or decline. And Steve was, that was really what Steve wanted to do. It wasn't change for change's sake. It was change because now was the right time to change to make sure the long-term future was there while still respecting the folks who had come before and put you in a, in a position to do that. And the Speedway is an awful lot like that because what makes us special is our history and tradition. Without our history and without our traditions that we have at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, we're just another race at a 110-year-old facility. And that's not necessarily attractive. What is attractive is history and tradition. And it's made us where we are today. But at the same time, we can't just decide that's all we're going to do. Because if that's all we're going to do, uh, when I first started here, our average age of our ticket customer, not the person that attends, but the person that buys that, that ticket was 54 years old. The next year, that person's going to be 55, then 56. If you don't change, you're just catering to that person that just continues to get older. And the problem is you're not backfilling that customer. And ultimately, when all those folks that are buying your tickets today are gone, you have a big void and it's really hard to figure out how you attract those people. So we started things like the snake pit. You know, the snake, the real snake pit started in the seventies. This is organic party that you and I might've stopped by once or twice as we were growing up, probably ran through cause it scared us. Um, and we created one that was a little different. So it offended some of those folks who started in the snake pit, but it also attracted a brand new customer in a young adult under the age of 30. And it's the best marketing tool we have right now for a young adult under the age of 30. An event like the Rolling Stones bringing 55,000 people to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, not for a race, but for a concert, many of whom had never been here before. Now I know their name. I know their contacts. I can start talking to them about our events here. I can try and convince them to come uh, enjoy the Indianapolis 500, which is our bread and butter, or the Brickyard Weekend, which is our second uh, biggest um, revenue producer, not just for here, but for our whole local economy through hotels and all that it puts back into the city. So you do have to sort of think about it in a completely different lens, but you can't forget the history and tradition. It's 500 miles. It's a yard of bricks. It's 33 drivers. It's a glass of milk at the end of the day. It's back home again in Indiana. It's taps. It's the way you celebrate all the men and women who've served, but more importantly, the men and women who've given the ultimate sacrifice. Those things have to be there. That's so central to your DNA. If you take it out, it's like going from old Coke to new Coke. We're not doing that. We're just trying to make sure we take what's super important. The further away for, that you get from that DNA, that's where you start messing with things to make it better to attract that next generation. And you can have hard conversations with a customer. I call 10 customers every night. I say, and that's my politics days, right? It's, it's a constituent. Right. Calling just to say, we don't get to celebrate the Indy 500 in 26 days without folks like you. And then I get a chance to talk to them. And some of them don't understand why we did the snake pit or have a question of why are you doing this and not what you used to do. And when you start explaining it to them and, and you, you really put it in the context of, look, do you want your kids and your grandkids to fall in love with the Speedway and carry it, let's cherish it as much as you do going forward? Oh, absolutely, I do. Well, then we got to change enough so it inter inter interests them. I'm not going to take away the things that have really make it special. We're just going to change the things to help us bring in some of those that next generation of fan. And that's that's really what it's all about. In the Leaders and Legends podcast conversations we've had with Mark Miles, who's probably the singular most impressive leader I've met, just through his ability to you know, be an alchemist, everything he touches, it may not have been led before, but it ends up being gold. And then he's got Allison Melangdon, you know, right there. Who's if I would, could have my daughter grow up to be anyone I've ever met, it would be Allison Melangdon mm -hmm. plus you plus the whole group. Now, Roger Pinsky, one of the things I've said consistently is your approach to everything you just said is working because I have a son who's 20 who lives and dies the 500 every May and his frame of reference is your era. Mark Miles's era, Allison Melangdon's era of the 500. And so do you get the sense that, that younger folks are being enraptured not only by the month of May, of course, but by the race itself and all the traditions? Well, I certainly feel like it's going that way. Um, you know, the snake pit is a perfect example of kids who are coming here, maybe not for the race, but the, it is what they do on Memorial Day Sunday. It's part of their tradition. And hopefully we convince them to become race fans when they decide to grow up. And it's not about 
drinking a bunch of beer and dancing with my, my buddies in front of a stage and, and listening to bass that probably keeps you bumping for the next <laughs> several weeks after you leave here. Uh, you know, I, I had a, just a couple of anecdotes when, uh, so my uh, youngest is a senior in high school and he's going to go to Purdue. He's a lacrosse player and, and decided that uh, he wanted to swim because he thought he'd get in better shape for lacrosse swimming. And I swam all through high school and I swam at Butler and I said to him, I said, Carter, I mean, you can barely swim from the wakeboard to the boat. I mean, you, you can swim, but not swim, swim. He goes, oh, no, I'll be fine, Dad. That's no, no problem. So he tries out for swimming. I send a note to the coach and say, look, I don't know if this is going to work. He's never really done this before. Um, just, just be patient with him. And, I, and Carter comes back. I fully expected him to say, I'm not going to swim. And he said, I'm going to stick with it. It was terrible. It's the worst thing I've ever done in my life. And I volunteered to be the assistant swim coach. So the unpaid volunteer he shows up at the Fishers. His school doesn't have a pool. So we swam at the Fishers YMCA from 745 to 945 every night. So I'd leave here, go there. And a couple of swim meets, I was surprised at high school students on other teams who would walk up and say, are you, are you Doug Bowles from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway? And I say, yeah. And then, and they talk about how they've fallen in love with the sport. How, and then last night, my wife coaches high school girls lacrosse. I was at a game in Brownsburg, same thing. A student. So those are the kind of things that make you think maybe we are doing something right because you have these kids that are interested. But my guess is it's part of what we're doing, but it's also as much where they're growing up at home and they've probably got a dad or a mom or a grandpa or grandma that that's their tradition and they're passing it along. But if it were just your normal grandma, grandpa, mom or dad tradition, it doesn't work. It's got to have enough of that youth element in it to make it to, to make you really connect. And, and, and that's one of the things that I love about our place here is you know, got Mark and Allison and I all in, you know, I'm 54, Allison's about my age and Mark's a little older than both of us. And we've got a bunch of young people around and you have to listen to the young people. You can't just say, here's what we think we want to do. You have to give them an opportunity to tell you how to connect to that group. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of that and given, uh, given those opportunities for folks here on this team to help us connect with the next generation of fans. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Doug Bowles, President Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It's a busy month for him. We're very grateful for him to give us some of his time today. Is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire, Doug? Well, obviously, we talked about Steve. I mean, Steve Goldsmith for me is just having had an opportunity to really work alongside him in the prosecutor's office, then as he was running for mayor, um, and then as, as mayor. And, and honestly, maybe even learning more from him. Uh, when he ran for governor and, and, you know, Franco Bannon ultimately won that, um, that election, but just really the way that, that, um, you know, Steve accepted defeat and the way he, um, you know, really realized that uh, the state was still going to be in good hands. And, and I just really ha got to see all kinds of angles of Steve and his work ethic was unbelievable. The guy, like I said, the guy, I don't think slept and he was an early adopter of technology. So back in a day when, when technology was still a little bit of voodoo and people didn't know exactly how it was going to work, he really adopted it right away and tried to do everything he could to get his own staff adopting it and understanding it. And I think that was one of the things that uh, that really uh, made him so successful as he just was able to be open-minded about an awful lot of things. So still to this day, I kind of look up to him. Um, in terms of an entrepreneur, um, a local guy named Terry Lingner, uh, who was a television producer at ESPN, who spun off and did his own uh, Lingner Group Productions and did all kinds of television production in motorsport in the 80s that really transitioned and transformed uh, the way we consume motorsports. Um, and, and today, Innovative Edit is, is sort of a, a child of that company and, and just how committed they were to, uh, to the community. And with that, I got a chance to work alongside Jack Swarbrick. Uh, who was another uh, instrumental leader in getting our sports corp set up and now is the uh, athletic director at Notre Dame. But probably between those three folks are, are the three local people that I've uh, learned the most from. And then at the end of the day, my dad's my absolute hero, just from the father figure, but also just his work ethic and, you know, his focus on just uh, doing things the right way and doing things your own way, not getting caught up in what the crowd wants to do and being willing to uh, 
walk away from something that just didn't feel like who you were. You mentioned Mayor Goldsmith as someone who works 24-7, hardly sleeps, always looking for a new way to do things, embraces technology, has been enormously successful. If you took out Stephen Goldsmith for that description and inserted Roger Pinsky, how right would you be? Yeah, 100% right. You know, um, man, I'll tell you what, if you put the two of them up side by side, Steve, Steve is more of an intellectual. Roger's brilliant. Um, Steve was stupid brilliant. I mean, he's just one of those people that it's just amazing how smart he was. Um, Steve works all the time. Roger works all the, all the time. I mean, there is no stopping <laughs> in Roger. Pinsky. And the special sauce in Roger really is attention to detail and his willingness to open every door. He's not afraid to go down a hallway, open a door. It doesn't matter. He's going to explore every opportunity to get the last bit of perfection out of whatever it is. And I think that's really the special sauce for him. And I mean that literally and figuratively. Um, we will walk around the facility and you can't walk by a door without him asking you to open it up. And now after he's been through it and if he's gone in it and, he's, and it's clean enough and it makes sense, he understands why it's there. You might not ask to go in it again. But if you walk in a door and he's and you say, OK, this is this. We need to clean this new lights, do this, do that. Next time you go by, he's going to go in it until it's perfect. And that's why I think I'm so excited about getting folks back out here in May is because we've made so many changes, just subtle things, the way we painted certain things. Uh, the way we've trimmed certain things, just little stuff that when you look at it on its own, it doesn't make sense. But when you see it collectively with all these things, it makes the Indi Indianapolis Motor Speedway look 25 years younger than it than it really is. You know, we have a bunch of fencing around the speedway and inside the speedway, like underneath the grandstands. And we, we want Roger didn't like the fencing and I don't blame him. It was rough and needed. So we changed the fence mesh and he said, you know, what? if this isn't right, we need a top rail. So the fence, you know, you have the fence post and then the fence, and then there's a rail that you can put across the top that just, you know, I don't know what it does, right? It keeps the fence from being pushed over <laughs> easier. I don't know. And I said, well, why do we need to do that? He said, because it'll look better. Just trust me. So we spend a lot of money putting top rail up and the place looks, it looks magical. It's, it's, it's finished. It's not like somebody sort of put the fence up and left it there. It's, it's done in, in Roger Pinsky way. So if you put the two of them together, um, I, I think they're really, really close. Uh, Roger will text you all night long. He's got an iPhone and uses it. He's 84 years old and, and he uses it like an 18 year old. He's, he is uh, just an impressive person and his energy level is, uh, is the same as Steve's was. They, they, they just don't stop. We, in fact, he was in Germany last night uh, as, we, as we're taping this and uh, we started sending a, there's a group of us, four or five of us that had sent a text message I'd sent about where we were with tickets and how we were getting things out to ticket holders and, and what we had to work on. And somebody in the message sent a note and said, hey, Roger's probably asleep right now. So it would have been, you know, 2.30 in the morning or something in Germany. And within 10 seconds, the note comes back and says, I'm wide awake when we're talking about tickets. Tell me more. So it's, it's <laughs> the guy just goes and goes and goes. And, and honestly, we're fortunate that we had Roger Pinsky over the last year because while the family has done so much, the Holman George family did so much for this facility. It is today what it is because of them. Uh, Roger Pinsky, I don't know that anybody could have navigated us through those waters like Roger Pinsky did and did it with a positive attitude every single day. Never once have I heard him say, man, I bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at the wrong time. He's just said, hey, it's an opportunity. Let's keep going. Let's keep investing. It's good. The, the sun is going to shine. We're two laps ahead. Tomorrow, we're going to be three laps ahead. He just is one of those guys that uh, you see why he's so successful. You mentioned earlier about Panther racing. It's one of the things that as I've read some interviews with you and, and did some research for this podcast, you have been surrounded throughout your career in the company of the presence of champions. Jim Harbaugh is one of those men. Talk to us, please, on the podcast a little bit about your association with Jim and, um, did he wear those khakis back at Panther Racing, racing or is this something new? Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll close on a khaki story about Jim because it's absolutely true. Um, my first opportunity to meet Jim was through uh, Gary Pettigo and, and uh, Terry Lingner when we were trying to form Panther. 
And uh, we were number four because of Jim's number four here when we ultimately did it. But Jim was not just a figurehead. He was an investor in the organization and he was uh, involved. He came, he came to the shop. He was with the guys. He came on, the, he came race weekends with us. He was just a fantastic person. And what, what, what I really loved about Jim was his desire to motivate the team. So the guys that were working on the car and all of us to be better and to work as a team, to communicate. And Jim would roll his sleeves up and go to battle for his team. And he, he didn't care. I, I use an example of, and, and I hope, you know, I've told this a few times and he's never called me yet to tell me not to tell the story, but when he got traded to Baltimore, which he always said was the wisest move the Colts ever made was to trade him to get, to get uh, Peyton Manning. Um, we were racing in Dover, Delaware, which was close. And, and he came down um, from Baltimore to that race that weekend. And, and we had a little altercation on the racetrack where we, we got run over by another driver and um, Jim was going somewhere after the race. And one of our crew guys had run into another crew guy from the team that ran over us and then ended up getting in a little bit of a scuffle. So there were three or four of them. One of our guy, Jim's happened to walk by. He doesn't know what started. He doesn't know if our guy deserves to be getting pummeled. All Jim saw was there was his guy getting beat up and Jim was in the fight. And he was going to ask questions later. He was going to do whatever he could to protect his team, his guys, and then worry about it later. And it, to me, it speaks to why, why you want to go play at Michigan for Jim Harbaugh is because, you know, that guy's going to give you everything he's got. He's going to be 100%. He'll 100% have your back in public. And if there's a, and then he may, he may disagree with you and talk to you about it separately, but, but for him, it was all about team first. And it really made a difference to, uh, to our guys to have him several years ago, uh, we did a little a Panther racing uh, owners reunion. So the first group of us that, that started Panther and we met downtown at, uh, at, at St. Elmo's and Gary Pettigo was picking Jim up at the airport and then was going to bring him in they're like 10 minutes late and we haven't heard from him. We get a call from Gary who says, Hey, um, we just landed. Jim didn't pack any clothes. He needs to go to Walmart to get, <laughs> to get some Dickies and some polos so that he can get through the next two. He was in for the NFL combine. And, and literally they went to the Walmart in Mooresville and he bought his Dickies for the week while he was going to be here and the black polos or whatever he, you know, whatever he wore. And they ended up showing up at, uh, about 45 minutes late to, uh, to dinner because Jim had to go buy his clothes that he could, and he just didn't pack. He just knew what he needed. He knew he could get his, his Dickies at Walmart. So it's, a, it's an absolute hundred percent true story about him. <laughs> We've talked a lot about the, the race and the 500 and the speedway and all that, but as a kid growing up in Danville, for you to even get this opportunity, what has this opportunity meant to you? I remember when I had a chance to work for Mayor Ballard. I never, ever thought that I would have a chance to work for Republican mayor of Indianapolis. Like it was shocking. And it, it changed my life. For you, you've attended the race, you've driven past the track, you're in love with racing, and someone calls you and says, hey, we need you. What was that like? Um, it, it was, it's still hard to understand, honestly, um, getting a chance to do the team side and, and to be part of a team that raced here was really, really special. And when I got a call from a guy named Mark Dill, who worked here, um, at the time in 2010 and said, Hey, we may need some, we need some promotion help. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about coming to the speedway. And then ultimately they hired me and I got a chance to come work here and then, uh, run the PR and communication, not just for, um, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but really Holman and company. So that was all of their corporate stuff as well as IndyCar uh, was amazing, amazing opportunity. And then um, when they made me chief operating officer, that was really hard to believe. Um, I still remember the day though, that I met Mark Miles in the Pagoda in, in May of 2013. And when he asked me if I was interested in serving as president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and, and, that's a job that I don't think you could ever dream of. Uh, it just, just wasn't ever going to be in the cards for somebody that wasn't family member or from Terre Haute, Indiana, or, you know, you start thinking about all the things that you had to be to be president of the Speedway. And, um, you know, I just, Jeff Belskis and 
Mark Miles giving me the opportunity to do that. And, and then I've got just an amazing team that I work with here that really allow me to, to go promote. And, and every day I get up and all I really want to do is, is make people fall in love with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and help my team solve the problems they have to do to execute an Indianapolis 500 and the events we have here. But I drive in every day and I think about the day in 1977 when I came to my first 500 and walking through here with my dad uh, and the excitement of that 10 year old uh, to see an Indy 500 for the first time I'd been to qualifying. I listened on the radio. I mean, all I cared about was the Indy 500 and to come the first time that, that moment, I, I think about it every day. I call my dad almost every day, just as much because, and this is as much about him as it is about me. Um, and then the other thing for me is it's, I, I got to always remember I'm a fan and I have to put my fan hat on and make sure that the decisions we're making are really are making it better for the fans. There's oftentimes we make decisions that um, there's a lot of other influences and may not be the perfect thing for the fan. I can't completely explain why, but I hope that our fans understand that the, the first thing I think about, even frankly, the first thing Roger Pinsky thinks about is how, are, how does this decision impact the fans? Does it make our fan experience better? And that's, uh, um, you know, all, it's just the, the, the memories that I think of every day that I'm here and I'm fortunate and blessed and on, I don't know, it's, it, this is a, this, it's a God thing. I, I, I didn't get myself here. I, I still can't explain. Did you ever tell, uh, AJ Foyt, you were his good luck charm for his fourth victory in 1977. So a, a, yeah, AJ absolutely knows that he was my hero. Um, and it, it's, it's, uh, it's been funny because told you that you know the Bobby Unser thing you know that just didn't work but there were there was more animosity towards Mario Andretti than there was AJ because because Mario uh, you know Bobby retires in the early 80s and Mario goes on and continues to win and heck he'd be winning today if he was still racing um and AJ didn't have the same success at the end of his career that Mario did partially I think because AJ tried to also own his own team didn't just right. focus on driving like Mario did um but it made you a less and less and less of a Mario fan when you were an AJ fan. And, and um, I've actually had more fun getting to know Mario and what Mario has meant to this sport and how great he is as an ambassador for, for all of us. Um, and, and the two of us actually joke often about, you know, he shouldn't help me at all because I, I didn't like him. And I was, <laughs> um, it's, it's still really hard for me to walk into a garage area and have a conversation with, with AJ Foyt and not turn into the 10 year old who sat in the paddock penthouse and watched Gordon Johncock have to pull his car into turn one and think to myself, AJ Foyt is going to win his fourth Indy 500 at my first Indy 500. It's still, uh, it's still a really, it's a top 10 moment in my life for sure. And it led to one of the most iconic laps in the history of the Indianapolis motor speedway when he was obviously ailing, but Tony Holman, the owner of the Speedway, climbed in the car. God, I'm going to think, I'm going to remember here, it was the black and white Oldsmobile pace car from 77. Yeah, like a silver, a silver and black, yeah, for sure. Yeah, silver and black is what I meant mm -hmm. to say, yes. I just remember because it wasn't a Corvette, you know, like yep. it was so many times. But that, that, I, that beautiful lap that they took together after AJ became the first person to win four Indianapolis 500-mile races. Do you have a favorite? race day tradition oh without a doubt i have a favorite year-long tradition it's the 90 seconds that is back home again in indiana and i think it's because it marries perfectly um my love for this race my love for this event and my love for our state and our city it's all right there and it couldn't be any better and when you think about it that all of a sudden indianapolis indiana is on an international stage and everybody's eyes are paying attention to this little race called the indianapolis 500 uh, and there's this song, you know, back home again in Indiana goes and it's, uh, you know, for me really, um, you know, that's, that is the Christmas moment. And when back home again in Indiana sung, and then the command to start engines. And at some level, you know, once the green flag drops, it's like, oh man, I got to wait 365 days to do all that again. It's, it's that lead up that is what makes the race so special. So for sure it's back home again in Indiana. I get a chance the last I don't know, eight or nine years to, to drive one of those event cars that's in the front of the grid. So they're like four cars that drive and then the two seater and then the pace car and then the field. And I stand outside the car with just tears streaming down my face as back home again in Indiana is being sung. And then I get in the car and try and wipe those tears off and run 140 miles an hour down the backstretch, um, you know, to get the car off the racetrack so that the, the field can come around. So um, it's definitely, definitely back home again in Indiana. 
I remember when I was in the army, it was in the back in the late eighties and I was stationed in New Mexico. And for the first time in my life, I could watch the race live. <laughs> I wasn't even paying attention. I just flipped through the channels and caught the race. I'm like, Oh my God, that's right. It's not blacked out, but I it's caught delayed. it. Just... It's delayed. We don't black it out. It's delayed. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very sorry. And I caught it just a few moments before taps started. And a, a sergeant walked past my door and banged on the door and goes, what are you watching? And I said, come in here. And he watched taps, listened to taps as it was played. That's my favorite 500 tradition. But to be in, an, to be in a military facility in an army barracks and hear taps, mm -hmm. and this sergeant uh, was a Vietnam veteran, was a special moment because of the absolutely brilliant and poignant way that the Speedway and its hierarchy and the race honor veterans. How critical is that part of not only race day, but the entire month of May? So if you made me pick a second favorite part, it's the way that we honor the men and women who serve and those, especially on Memorial Day weekend, who paid the ultimate sacrifice. It, it, uh, is amazing to see the men and women who are in uniform as they march down pit lane and, and this sort of raucous crowd who can't wait for a race and maybe has been drinking beer since the gates have opened, get silent and stand to their feet and clap in this slow wave as these, as these men and women march by in, in respect for, um, for what they're doing, but really in respect for all of the men and women who serve to keep us free. And, and without those moments like that, I don't think the Indy 500 is what it is. It, you know, it, it was decoration day when they first had the first Indy 500 in 1911. It's now Memorial Day uh, weekend. It, it is central to the way we celebrate. And it starts, it really starts the weekend before in qualifying where we do a, a, a military weekend and we do an enlistment ceremony where young men and women who've made the commitment to serve our country in all branches, including the Coast, Guard's, Coast Guard, come in and, and take the oath of office and then get shipped off to some basic training camp, um, it, it, it really pays tribute to, you know, what the weekend's about. And, and it, it's something that is very Midwestern. It's very, very patriotic. It's, it's a lot of what in some ways our country isn't right now. It, it's an opportunity to just pause and put politics aside and everything else aside and say, we don't get to have all these crazy arguments with each other. We don't get to be on the left or the right, the left wing or the right wing without the men and women that have fought and died for us over the last 200 plus years. Um, and without that, the Indy 500 is completely different. And, and that's, um, for me, it, it really puts the tone and, it, and really sets, it really, it really puts in level of importance how important a race is. It's not about a race. It's really about the men and women who, who are allowing us to have that race. And, and, uh, I'm as I'm as proud to be a Hoosier in that moment as when when back home again in Indiana song because I just you just don't see it anywhere else in the country where people just stop what they're doing and say thank you. We had Gene Katie on about a year ago, famous Purdue coach, uh, and one of the things that I was we were talking about the Purdue IU rivalry was on that day on IU Purdue game day you could feel it. You could, you, knew, just, you could feel it in the city as you walked around, but that's a day. But in Indianapolis, I feel like the entire month of May changes people in this city. They have something to look forward to, either to watch or to attend, someone to root for, uh, something to reminisce about. Is that how it feels inside the Speedway? Like, okay, we have 11 months and no disrespect to the other races, obviously, mm -hmm. but now it's May as the calendar turns. Look what we've got to look forward to. You know, I, I love every day at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I love the other races that we have, but transparently, we all, I think I speak for everyone here, we do it for Indianapolis 500 race day in the month of May. It's what it's about. This place has been here since 1909 and the 500 since 1911. And it really is about that race. And to your point, it's no disrespect to the other ones. I love it. I, like I said, I love every day here. I love every day even more here when there's race cars on track. 
but it but it is about what happens in May, and that's why the other racing series want to come race here because of the, all the history that that May is and that May's created here. Um, so I think it's always been that way. Seventy percent of our our customer that comes to the Indy 500 doesn't watch another race the rest of the year. So it's not that they don't attend one; they don't watch another one. It's about that day, and they may not be a race fan, but they certainly know who won the race you know, last year and five years ago and who their favorite is. And they, they cut out the, the names and they, you know, do the, do the little drawing and throw the money in with their friends and just <laughs> enjoy that, enjoy that battle. But one of the things I think that's helped us as a community celebrate, you know, you talked a little bit ago about Alison Melanchthon and, and how special she is. The fact that leading into the hundredth running of the Indy 500, we truly tried to say, how do we take the celebration beyond 16th and Georgetown and really make it a central Indiana thing? And so all of the things that we do to promote the community feel um, inside Indianapolis doesn't necessarily sell a ticket, but what we, at the end of the day, want Indianapolis residents, Indiana residents to say is, you know, I'm not a race fan, but I'm proud the Indy 500 is here. I'm proud the Indy 500 happens every year. And I love the way that they do things and the way they connect to community. So whether it's our porch parties or working with the arts council or all the different things we do to engage the community and even, even segments of the community who aren't race fans, but try and engage them in a way that they can help celebrate alongside us, I think is really important um, to making this race feel like a big deal for those who come here uh, and to uh, making this community say, hey, you know what, this is always a good sign when we come together in this great community spirit to celebrate a race, but also to celebrate the fact that we've survived another Indiana winter and summer's around the corner. Well, of the other guests that we've had in our last few minutes here, Leaders and Legends podcast, we're talking to Doug Bowles, Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Uh, I brought this up when our friend Jim Voyles was on the podcast, Mr. Super Lawyer and good mm-hmm. friend and Fritos addict, I will say. Also, when Robin Miller came on, uh, we just posted a podcast with him and Bill Benner, is how the 500 has not been diminished by anything else. 50 years ago, if you would have said, not only do we have an NFL team, but we are going to host the Super Bowl, meaning Indianapolis, and completely redefine what it means for the entire NFL to host a Super Bowl, or the Pacers and their success, the list goes on and on, everything that's happening in this city with sports. But the 500 in the, in the track remains just as iconic then or now as it was then. Is that part of the allure of it that no matter what else happens in the city whether it's sports or anything else every other success there's still west 16th street you know i, I you know i think it still takes work to keep west 16th street west 16th street I, I, I do think that's why over the last you know six or seven years our focus has really been on how do we maintain that connection with the fan and then how do we go out and find that next new fan I, because there are so many different things to do not just the sports you talked about, but just entertainment in general and the ways that people uh, get their inter- information. And there's so many reasons now to stay at home and you know play games or whatever it is that that, that kids want to do. That is that it's important to continue to work at it. Um, but I I do think part of the fact um, that it's continued to be there is because even people like uh, the Colts and the Pacers and the Indians and and the Sports Corp folks, uh, all of all of the professional sports organizations in this community. You know, we, we take care of each other. Um, I want the Colts to be just as, I want them to be as successful as they can be. I want them to sell out every game and have all the sponsors they can get it. Same with the Pacers. And we're a small community and a lot of communities that are lots bigger than we are. Uh, those sports franchises inside the community compete against each other. And, and we have this unique way as citizens and corporate partners in Indianapolis to encourage each other and help each other. And it makes it easy for me to be a Colts fan, even though I'm promoting an event, maybe competing for the same dollar, the entertainment dollar that, that, that um, the Colts are and the Pacers. And, you know, even through this pandemic, um, our community, sports community has gotten on a Friday call together and shared information as a way to how do we help each other? What, what can we do as not the Pacers and uh, the Colts and the, and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but how do we as a community together, you know, help each other come through this? And I think it's that spirit of goodwill that we have toward each other that really has allowed the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indy 500 to be, you know, to continue to be what it is and for our other sports franchises to, to thrive because, you know, in a, in a community that's generally pretty small for the number of professional sports that we have here, um, 
I think the reason it works is because we all we all try and help each other out. And we just haven't, you know, the people that live in central Indiana have an amazing corporate spirit to, to help make sure we're successful. So when you're sitting at a Pacers game and the other team has the ball and you hear the uh, racing noises piped over the PA system, big smile. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's um, a really big smile when we can partner, you know, partner with somebody, somebody like that. And uh, you know, we can be a, we can be a, a sponsor of theirs and, and then they, they use our TV production team to help do their home games. I mean, there's a lot of synergy between uh, all of the organizations. It's funny. You mentioned the Pacers game. You know, I'm really careful that if we bring guests to our suite and we have floor seats every once in a while that I'm not bringing a guest who wants to root for the other team. Cause occasionally you'll have somebody say, Hey, we're coming in town and the Mavericks mm-hmm. are playing. Can we go to the game? And we're like, no, I'm not taking anybody <laughs> in that place that's going to wear a Dallas Mavericks jersey uh, with me. I don't want to be associated with anybody, but somebody that's going to wear uh, wear a Pacers jersey. And and I think you know, same with the Colts. I don't want to go to a Colts game with somebody that's there to to root for the Bengals or the or the Steelers. It's about supporting our home team, and and we take it we take that just as personally as we would if somebody came in here and said you know they they were coming here to make fun of IndyCar racing because they like some other kind of racing better. And I can say that's true from the Pacers standpoint, because I had a client from Miami who wanted to pay big, big money for four floor seats for a heat Pacers game when LeBron was in Miami and an unnamed person very high up in the Pacers hierarchy said, no, yeah, we'll, we'll eat the tickets. We're not selling them to a fan of the heat. We have reached the point in the leaders and legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all our guests. Mr. Doug Bowles, are you ready? I am. What was your first job? Well, other than cutting lawns, my first real job was uh, detailing Chevrolet cars as they came into Dugan Chevrolet on the west side of Indianapolis in Danville, Indiana. It was one of the most fun jobs I had. Uh, I got to work alongside a guy who who, who detailed cars his whole life, and uh, he said, "You're not you're not a car washer. You're a hydro engineer." So that was uh, that was that was my first job. I had a blast. 1982. Um, it was a year that the Camaro was the pace car here, and I couldn't wait for those Camaro pace cars to get delivered to Dugan Chevrolet and get to pull the pull the wrappers off the inside and get that car cleaned up to sell. Number two, what was your first concert? I don't even want to tell you what my first con- concert was because it, it's it's not indicative of my music taste. Although I'm, I, I love all kinds of music and I love country music, but um, it was actually Ronnie Millsap and the Statler brothers at uh, the state fairgrounds. And then my second one, which was real shortly thereafter was at Marcus square arena for, with John Denver. So there you go. Not real exciting. <laughs> Sorry. I was trying not to forgive me, Doug. <laughs> I think yeah. Greg Ballard still has the uh, record, still has the most unique, his first concert. It was at IU and it was, um, Sly and the family stone. So just <laughs> picture Greg Ballard uh, dressed like, uh, you know, Jimi yeah. Hendrix down at IU. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Well, uh, I don't read it enough, but certainly the Bible um, is, is one that I would, I would definitely, definitely recommend. And, there's a, and then if you're uh, looking for something that, that's related to our history, um, there's a great book called The Aviators that uh, is about uh, Eddie Rickenbacker, um, Doolittle, and Lindbergh, and how those three lives and their passion for racing cars and flying airplanes uh, impacted us uh, into uh, World War II. And it's a fascinating, fascinating story. Uh, it's, a, it's a great one I've recently read. And then the, the book recently uh, published about the USS Indianapolis uh, is also another um, unbelievable read if you're wanting to know what it's all about to really serve your country and pay the ultimate sacrifice. And then uh, you know, just the challenges to get, uh, to get that crew and that, uh, that skipper exonerated. That's the, uh, Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek book. And they yes, both, they both came on this podcast and they were terrific, terrific guests. We grew it's up on the East, we grew up on the East side with the O'Donnell family. So rest in peace, Mary O'Donnell, who passed yes. away just not long ago. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which would you choose? Oh, that's an easy one. 1911 Indianapolis 500. Ray Haroon. Ray Haroon. I I just want to see what the crowd was like. I'd like to know how they took tickets. I'd like to know when customers showed up. I'd like to see how concessions worked. Um, (laughs) I love the fact that they wore a tie and the ladies wore hats. I mean, there's just so so much of that that fascinates me. And what I'd really love to see, I'd love to see the color. We get to see it all in black and white. I'd love to see how much color there really was 
uh, on that event day. So without a doubt, 1911 Indianapolis 500. And wearing a tie is important to you. I've read that in two separate interviews. It's very, you wearing a tie for this interview. I'm wearing a Cincinnati Reds t-shirt. But wearing a tie is important to you because you think it honors the people who came before you. When uh, I didn't do this every day until they made me president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and I said, any day I'm representing the Speedway, um, I'm going to wear a tie because the, the brand deserves a tie. Um, Carl Fisher wore a tie. Tony Holman wore a tie. Eddie Rickenbacker wore a tie. I mean, the, the great Wilbur Shaw, I mean, the great people in the history of our facility and our sport wore a tie. And it's just my way of saying thank you for the opportunity to represent all that you guys stood for and all that you built. So, um, and sort of, in, and in a weird way, it sort of fits the Penske, the Penske mold anyway. So it worked out okay for me. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? So this is a really weird one, and I've had this question before, and it's the first name that always comes to mind, and most people are going to think it's nuts, but I, but this goes back to um, somebody that's willing to take chances, somebody that's willing to try something new, and somebody that's, you know, cutting edge in entertainment, maybe in sport, and and has an opportunity to connect to youth, but it's Paul Rabel. Um, I love, I love lacrosse, um, because our kids all did lacrosse, but I love um, how he's taken lacrosse from a sport that outside of the Northeast people didn't know what it was and turned it into a professional sport. It's got it on television. Um, you know, just watching him over the last few years has been pretty fascinating. He actually was on the grid for the Indy 500 in 2019. I had no idea until he tweeted about it. And I'm so disappointed I didn't get a chance to meet him. But I would just love to talk to Paul Rabel, just a young sports executive who's out doing something uh, pretty impressive. And I, I just love to know what makes him tick. You have been listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been President Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Doug Bowles. If you want to understand why leadership matters and you want to understand how important it is for people to work together and to be able to get folks to buy into what you're trying to do, to support what you're doing, then pay attention to people like Doug Bowles. The last thing I'll say is for my son's high school graduation present two years ago from Ron Colley. I bought him, my brother and I did, one of those two-seater rides. <laughs> he got out of the car, walked right up, and said, God, I love this place. <laughs> you all are doing a wonderful job, Doug. Thank you very much for giving us some time today. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to, to chat, and thank you for all you're doing to uh, you know, help make Indianapolis better. Uh, it's uh, neat to see people who... We're on the 25th floor. Um, haven't forgotten how important it is to continue to grow Indianapolis and still invest in their time doing it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.